Hey, happy Easter, everyone. We're so glad that you guys are here today on Easter Sunday. This is an anniversary of the greatest victory in the history of mankind. Jesus became the grave robber. Jesus emerged from the tomb as the death conqueror. Jesus sealed the biggest victory by fulfilling what God had promised in his prophets, that he would send a man, that God himself would come down to earth, and he would usher in the kingdom of God, where the reign of God would happen again on earth. And in order to do that, the Messiah, Jesus, had to overthrow the powers that had been running this world. Overthrow the powers that had been running this world. I want to share with you what Jesus said perhaps just a week before he went to the cross. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 12. And Jesus said these words. He said, The time of judgment for the world has come when the prince of this world will be cast out. When the prince of this world will be cast out. Now, you may be thinking, well, what does that mean? Somebody's running the world other than God? I thought God was running the show. Well, he was. But sin and death, because of man's disobedience, because of our estrangement from God, because all we like sheep decided to go our own way and we wanted to live independently from God, that resulted in a broken world, resulted in a broken earth that is now groaning for its redemption, resulted in a broken humanity who is now looking to say, is there a better way to live? What is wrong with our world? Sometimes we act like angels, sometimes we act like devils. Why in the same person, why are we so back and forth? Is there, is there a way for us to live that is a better way? And Jesus came along and he says, I want you to turn from your sins. I want you to turn back to God because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he came in to usher the kingdom. And in order to do that, he had to take care of what was separating us from God. Because the Bible says that we've all sinned and the Bible says the wages or the consequences of sin is death. And so it was either going to be you and me dying for our own sins or it was going to be somebody innocent, a third party, to take our place. And that's what Jesus did. In fact, we focused on that last week. If you want to check out the message, it's on our website. Jesus is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, now Jesus has died. He he died on the cross. They brought him down from the cross. They took his body and they put it in a tomb And they buried him and they sealed up the tomb with a large stone. They rolled it in front of the tomb. And then Friday night was coming and darkness and they had to uh, honor the law of Moses. So they celebrated the Passover. Nothing happened on Saturday. Saturday was a day of silence. Saturday was this period of waiting, of what's going on. Uh, It looks like everything that we had worked for with Jesus to build the kingdom of God. It was all going so well. He came into the... He came into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. They're throwing palm leaves and putting down their blankets and they're they're calling him the Messiah. And five days later, he's crucified on a cross and he's put in a tomb. And the entire movement just came to a screeching halt. And I want to say to you today that when we go over this story of the first Easter Sunday, you know, some of us are, we get jaded over time. We, it loses its impact because we've heard the story over and over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave. Grave, the tomb is empty. He was seen by his disciples and they started spreading the word. And 2,000 years later, here we are in West Sonoma County and we're worshiping God today. All that is true, but what that doesn't, that doesn't impact you with is, is the absolute surprise, the shock, 
and the unexpectedness of that event that happened on that first Easter morning. And so I want to go to those events. I want to go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. It's the last chapter there where Luke's telling the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. And he, we reach that first Sunday early in the morning, and it says in verse 1, but very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb. They were taking the spices that they had prepared. Now, I want to pause just there for a moment. The women were going to the tomb Sunday morning. They had to rest on the Sabbath. So now they're coming in the tomb on Sunday morning. Are they looking for the resurrected Jesus? Are they saying, I can't wait to go see the empty tomb because our Lord is risen, just like he said. It says, they were walking to the tomb carrying burial spices. What does that imply? They were expecting nothing more than a corpse, a dead body, and he didn't get a proper burial, burial, so they were going to honor his life by burying him with these burial spices and, and aromas and lotions and things like that for his burial. They were not expecting him to be raised from the dead. And they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. In Mark's gospel, the women actually ask each other, says, okay, we got a problem. When we get to the tomb, who's going to roll the stone away for us? Because there was this large stone that was rolled down into this crevice and, and it took a lot of men, a lot of power to roll the stone away. But when they arrived to the tomb that first Sunday morning, the stone had already been rolled away. And so the, they went inside the tomb. It said they found the stone had been rolled away. They went in. They didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. So the next big surprise after the stone has been rolled away is here's the tomb and there's no body in there. John's gospel says there were grave clothes in there, and the grave clothes were all laid out nice and neat. In fact, the head cloth was separate from the other grave clothes, implying that the body uh, of Jesus had just sort of miraculously lifted out up and through the grave clothes without, without crumpling or messing up the grave clothes. And so they see this, they say, there's grave clothes, there's an empty tomb, what does this mean? And at that moment, an angel, two angels appeared, said they were men clothed in dazzling robes, and these men appeared to them and said, the women being terrified, the men said, why, and this is the greatest question, they said, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here, he's risen from the dead. I mean, that, that's the greatest statement. That's why I put it on the, the, the sermon outline for you guys. Uh, it's on the front cover. It says, you're looking for somebody who's dead among the living. Jesus isn't dead anymore. He's alive. He promised you that. He told you he was going to come back from the grave. Do you not remember? And it says that the Son of Man must be betrayed. He must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. And it says, then they remembered that he had said this. And so the women, all except one, the women rushed from the empty tomb after the message from the angels, and they rushed back to the upper room, and they told the disciples what had happened. They said, we went to the tomb with the burial spices, and the tomb was already open, and the stone was rolled away, and there was nobody in there. And it, and it says that the 11 disciples, you know, what my expectation reading the story was, oh, and the disciples said, of course there's no body in there because he's risen from the grave, just like he said. But you know what the Bible really says in the story? The Bible says they were perplexed, they were confounded, they were confused, and it says they found the story that the women told them as nonsense. 
as nonsense. They were absolutely not expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. And so that's in the upper room. Now you go back to the, to the tomb where Jesus, uh, where, where the empty tomb, and Mary Magdalene, she was the only woman who stayed behind. She did not run back to the apostles at that moment. And she came to the empty tomb, and she's crying and she's weeping, and a gardener, which, who she thinks is a gardener, it's really Jesus, and she, the gardener comes up to her and he says, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, they've moved, they've taken away the body of my Lord and I don't know where they put him. Can you tell me where they put him? And then Jesus reveals himself to her, risen from the dead, and he says her name. He says her name. And that is one of the greatest hopes that I have in my life, that, some, that not only does Jesus know my name, but that someday Jesus is going to say my name to me face to face, just like he did for Mary. And Jesus said to Mary, and he said, Mary. And her eyes were open, and she realizes it's Jesus and that he's alive, and he's not crucified. And it's, it's not a mangled, crumpled up body that, that he was beaten and, and crucified and flogged with the crown of thorns. This is, a, this is an alive, healthy, living, resurrected body that's not going to be sick anymore and is not going to get old anymore and is not going to decay anymore. And the only thing that's left from his old life were some scars. Jesus still has scars in his resurrected physical body. And he has, a, he has a scars on his hands. He has scars on his feet where the nails went in. And he still has a scar on his side. Can you imagine that? Even when we see the Lord Jesus, he's still going to have those scars to remind us of what he was willing to do for us. That's an amazing trait that he had. And so Mary sees Jesus. She says, Rabboni. She says, my teacher. And she puts a big hug on him. And then Jesus goes away. Mary runs back to the apostles, to the disciples in the upper room, and she tells them her story. And they don't believe her. They don't believe her either. Uh, partially uh, because they were so confounded and perplexed. Partially because they could not believe what was really happening. Their reasoning, you know, when somebody dies, that's the end of it. Maybe there's a resurrection at the last day. Maybe when time comes to an end and God is going to raise all everyone from the grave and there's going to be a final judgment. Maybe there'll be a resurrection then, but not now. And the game was over. The movement ended. It came to a screeching halt. We thought we were going to usher in the kingdom of God and then Jesus dies. So what are we supposed to do now? They were absolutely not ready to believe that Jesus really was alive again. And, the, and so the story continues. Now there's two of these disciples and they leave Jerusalem and they start walking west. They're walking over to a small town named Emmaus and it's about seven miles away. And during their walk, Jesus comes up with them. So he's risen from the dead and he's making all these appearances. And so he walks along with these guys and he says, hey, what are you talking about? And he says, we're talking about Jesus and what happened. And he says, what things? What do you, talk, what do you mean, Jesus? What, what do you, what's this all about? And they said, basically my vernacular is, where have you been? Where have you been? Because Jerusalem, this is all that has happened in Jerusalem in the last three days. And there was this Jesus and he was a mighty prophet and he did miracles. And he did all these great deeds and he comes in Jerusalem and he's welcomed as if he's the Messiah. And then five days later, they put him on a cross and they kill him and they bury him and put him in the tomb. And it's like, that's what's been happening around here. And we don't understand because we thought he was gonna bring in the kingdom of God. And it's like, Whatever those plans were, they're just dead, as dead as Jesus is. 
And then Jesus kept going with them and, and uh, he tries to straighten them out and he says, you guys, uh, don't you believe what the prophet said? That the Messiah, before Messiah comes into his glory, he had to suffer. He had to suffer for the sins of the people like Isaiah 53, like we talked about last week where he had to be the suffering servant and take on the sins of the people. Jesus had to do that before he entered his glory. And so they're listening to Jesus teach them. They still don't recognize as Jesus. Finally, they stop for a meal. They ask Jesus to stay. Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks and he breaks the bread. And at the moment Jesus broke the bread, that's when, that's when their eyes were open and they realized it was Jesus. So he says, it's Jesus. And then I don't know why Jesus did this. Uh, it's, it's his life. Uh, I, I don't tell Jesus what to do. Jesus disappears at that moment. And they're like, he's risen. Where is he? We got to go tell somebody. So, so they, the, the, the disciples in Emmaus, then they go back to Jerusalem. They run back to the rest of the disciples. They come into the upper room that Sunday night because by now it's Sunday evening. And they said, we've seen the Lord. And uh, the disciples say, so is Peter. And the women, uh, Mary says, I've seen the Lord. And, and so all of this is going on. And there's confusion. There's people that want to believe. There's people that are skeptical. And at that moment, at that Sunday night, it says that Jesus came into the room. And it says as they were telling each other about these things, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. And he said, peace be with you. Can you imagine what their hearts were feeling like? Beating out of their chest, but anxiety and nervousness and hope and despair and confusion and all that. And Jesus comes in and he says, peace be with you. And by the way, the doors were locked and the room was closed. And yet somehow Jesus could appear right in front of them. So he has this physical body, but the physical body doesn't wear out. And the physical body can eat, can speak. You can touch his body. And yet he can also appear in the middle of a room and go right through walls. So it's some amazing uh, traits that Jesus has now in his resurrection body. So he peers them. He says, peace be with you. And he says, the whole group was startled and frightened. They thought they were seeing a ghost. They thought they were seeing a ghost. That's their, the first explanation is we see something. He looks like Jesus, but it can't really be Jesus. Maybe it's a ghost. So you can imagine coming up like cutting through the ghost like you want to get your hand and <laughs> to see if you can make your hand through it and that whap and they hit something solid. Ow, he's really solid, you know. That's crazy. So Jesus, that's because Jesus was raised bodily from the grave. And so as he spoke, Jesus said, touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts do not have bodies as you can see that I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and feet. He showed them the scars. And it says, still. And so you're thinking, okay, these, these guys wrote the story. So you think, you think what they would do is they say, okay, at last they believed. And from then on, they never doubted a moment in their life about Jesus. But they're telling the real story as it happened. And so it says, still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Friends, these followers, and the reason they still stood there with disbelief mixed with joy and wonder was because they had no expectation of this. They were completely caught off guard, dumbfounded by these events. They wanted to believe and celebrate, but their understanding could hardly catch up with what their eyes were seeing. Jesus was alive. Jesus was no longer dead. Jesus is risen. It was game over. 
Now is, is it game on again? What does this mean? And so they're, they're processing all this. And, and now Jesus says, okay, we got we to gotta make this clear that you're really seeing me alive, bodily, with a physical body risen from the dead. And so Jesus says, does any of you uh, have something to eat? Any of you got something to eat? Somebody brought over a piece of fish and Jesus ate it in front of them. And it wasn't like that Pirates of the Caribbean where there's that half alive, half person and they drink a glass of water and it's like, it goes, no, he had a physical body and he ate the piece of fish in front of them. And then Jesus says, okay, I want to tell you what all this means. He said, when I was with you before, I told you that... Jesus, you know, having the fruit of the Spirit where it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. Did Jesus not exercise patience with these disciples at this time? Because I would have said, I told you guys this stuff many, many times. Where were you? Were you deaf? Were you not listening to me? And that Jesus is so patient and he says, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that all of those predictions by the prophets must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he says, yes, it was written long ago that Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It's also written that this message, this good news message about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and the forgiveness and new life that we have in him, this message is going to be proclaimed to all nations, all nations throughout the earth, beginning right here in Jerusalem. And I guess he was saying, and you guys, guess what? You're going to be the spokesman. You're going to be the mouthpiece of this good news message. And so... Uh, that there would be forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. You know, I want you to know, I, I probably should, uh, this probably should be a prerequisite for standing up here as your pastor to say this, but I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he died on a cross for our sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. And yet, I physically, with my own eyes, I have not seen Jesus. I have not seen him. He hasn't come down to me. He hasn't appeared to me and says, I am he, believe. And, and okay, I'll believe in you now. I, you know why I believe in Jesus? Because I believe the testimony of these early followers of Jesus. I believe that when they are telling us the story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they have seen the Lord Jesus risen from the dead and it surprised them and they were caught off guard and they were stunned in disbelief and they were stumbling over each other trying to figure out what it meant. That rings true to me more, so much more than if they told the story of, yes, Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples who were expecting it the whole time and they said, wait a go Jesus way to fulfill your word and it was nothing but victory and unicorns and rainbows from that time on that that would that would have been a great fictional story this the way they're telling the story is much more true and authentic to what it to the way it actually happened so when I say I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be what I'm saying is I believe these people these early followers of Jesus and I believe their testimony and I want to show you some uh, what I call minimal facts 
that whether you are a follower of Christ or whether you are still exploring the Christian faith or whether you're a flat-out skeptic and you say, I don't even believe this stuff. I believe you guys are, are buying into a myth. I believe you're buying into a legend. I don't believe that Jesus really did any of that stuff. I don't even know if Jesus really existed 2,000 years ago. People could still make that claim today and yet there are some minimal facts that are out there that, that you don't have to be a believer to say this these events really happened in history. And I want to share five of those with you. I want to share five of these minimal facts that may help persuade you if you still don't believe in Jesus that he really is who he claimed to be. The first minimal fact that, that skeptics and believers both agree on, the first minimal fact is that Jesus was killed by crucifixion. Jesus was killed on that cross by crucifixion. The Gospels all say it's true. Ah, yeah, that, that's your scriptures. That's you Christians saying it really happened. What about, was there anybody else around who wasn't a Christ follower who said that Jesus was killed by crucifixion? As a matter of fact, there was. There was a Jewish historian named Josephus that said Jesus was killed and died on a cross. There was a Roman historian named Tacitus that said that Jesus suffered the extreme penalty which was a colloquial phrase which meant crucifixion under Pontius Pilate or under Pilate. There, were, uh, there, was, a Jewish, uh, there was a Greek satirist named Lucian of Samosota. He mentions the crucifixion. There's another guy named Marabar Serapion who was probably had a Jewish name, but he was a pagan. He confirms that Jesus was executed. And even this, and this, this is astounding, even the Jewish Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, who had every reason not to believe that Jesus was the Messiah because they rejected him as Messiah, even the Jewish Talmud says that Yeshu was hanged on a tree. And in first century uh, language, being hanged on a tree was another way of, of saying crucifixion. In fact, Paul says it in Galatians. He says, uh, for the law says anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And then and then Paul says, Jesus became God's curse for us so that we could be forgiven and be brought into a right standing with God, thanks to what Jesus did for us. So Jesus was killed by crucifixion. That's agreed on by believers and skeptics alike. The second historical fact agreed on by believers and skeptics is that Jesus's, and, and get the wording of this clearly, Jesus's disciples, they believed that he rose and appeared to them. So there, you don't have to say, I believe that Jesus rose and appeared to the disciples, but you do have to acknowledge that Jesus' early followers, they all believed that he appeared to them. In 1 Corinthians 15, that was written maybe only 20 years after the events of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, Paul's writing to this Corinthian church in Greece, and he says, I delivered to you what was of a first importance that which was handed down to me. So there was this traditional creed that was handed down to the Apostle Paul within 20 years of the events of, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And he says, here's what was handed down to me that I'm passing on to you. And Paul says, Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And Jesus appeared to the apostles. He appeared to the women. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time. He appeared to Peter individually. And Jesus also appeared to James, it says in 1 Corinthians 5. So 
uh, it is cl it's clear that Jesus' disciples believed that uh, Jesus had appeared to them. You know, another reason why I believe Jesus appeared to the disciples is because you look at the, the scope and breadth of these early disciples' lives. They believed that Jesus really was risen from the dead. What did they do with that belief? They proclaimed that belief. They began the early church. They endured some terrible persecution. The 11 people that we call the apostles, who were the main spokesmen for Jesus to proclaim his good news to the world, every one of them except one died a terrible, horrible, martyr's death, still believing that Jesus was the Christ. And the reason I say that's remarkable is because if the disciples had invented this story, if they said, you know, we can't let the kingdom of God that Jesus started end with this. We need to, to keep it going somehow. Let's say, let's steal his body away. Let's bury it somewhere where nobody can find it. And let's just say and start telling everybody, he's risen from the dead. He's risen from the dead. If that really happened, I do believe that at least one or two or many more of his of his apostles, when it came to the point of pressure of death, when the knife was at their throat, when the spear was in near their side saying, you either deny that Jesus really rose from the dead or we're going to kill you. And every one of those apostles remained true to their testimony. They went to their death believing that. Now, it's one thing to say, well, lots of people believe in a lie and they go to their death believing a lie. Yeah, but here's the difference. The disciples would have known that it was a lie. A lot of people die for a lie, but they believe it is true. But the disciples would have known that it wasn't true that Jesus rose from the dead and yet they would be proclaiming a lie and they would be willing to die a martyr's death for their life. So the, the historical fact is the early believers, they believed that Jesus uh, rose from the dead. That's the second fact. The third fact is there is a conversion of somebody who was a major skeptic in the first century. In fact, he was the enemy of the church. He was the arch enemy of the early church. His name was Saul. My nickname for him was he was Saul the Terrible. Saul the Terrible because he thought his job was to wipe out the Christian faith. He thought that Jesus was not the Messiah, the Son of God. And so he said, you Christians are teaching a perverted way of Judaism and it's gotta be stopped and it's gotta be wiped out. And Saul made it his life's ambition to wipe out Christianity. And yet somewhere about five or six or seven years into the start of the Christian faith, Paul, Saul, who's now so uh, zealous to wipe out Christianity, he's on his way to a foreign city. He's on his way to, to, to Damascus to find followers of Jesus, to arrest them, and to bring them back for trial in Jerusalem. And Saul, on the way to Jerusalem, his testimony was he was stopped, blinded by the light in the middle of the noonday sun on the road just outside Damascus, and he heard a voice from heaven, and that voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is blinded and he's laying on the ground and he says, Lord, Lord, who are you, Lord? Who are you that I'm persecuting? And he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And so Paul, I say Paul, Saul has this conversion experience. He goes from being the arch enemy of Christianity to now being the major apostle to proclaim the Christian faith to the rest of the Roman world. He's called the missionary to the Gentiles. And Saul changes his name to Paul. And you're saying, well, okay, 
So what does that mean? Well, that means that something happened major in Saul's life to convert him from being a total unbeliever enemy of the Christian faith to become a believer. That's, a, that's one of those facts that you can't deny. Another fact you can't deny is number four, there was another guy who was a skeptic who was a member of Jesus' own family. His name is James. Now you may think of James, he wrote the book that we have in the New Testament called James. James was a leader in the early church. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And yet James, it says before the resurrection, James was a skeptic. If you read John's gospel, uh, Jesus is, is in Galilee doing ministry. It's in the fall, about six months before Jesus' death in the spring. And Jesus is in Galilee and James says to him, you know, if you're really a prophet of God, if you really are claiming to be this Messiah, he says, you can't keep doing your ministry here in backwoods Galilee. This isn't going to get you anywhere. You really want to make yourself known to the Jewish leaders? You need to go to Jerusalem. You need to get down there for the festival. And then it says, for even his own family members did not believe in him. James was a total skeptic. And yet James is now a leader of the church after what he claims is he had a personal encounter, an eyewitness event where he experienced seeing the, reason, the risen Jesus alive. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and he appeared to James. So you have these two skeptics that now are leaders in the church. And then the last one, the last one's pretty obvious. So Jesus was killed by crucifixion. The disciples believe he rose from the dead. You have the conversion of Saul to Paul the Apostle. You have the conversion of James being a, an unbelieving family member to now being a leader in the church. And then the last minimal fact is what everybody pretty much acknowledged in the, in the first century. The last fact is the tomb was empty. Amen. The tomb was empty, right? So not, I look up on the wall here and I see an empty cross. Nobody, nobody disputes an empty cross. But the empty tomb is another thing. And, and yet in the first century, nobody disputed the tomb was empty. In fact, the Jews who, who still did not believe Jesus was risen from the dead, the Jews' explanation, they came up with an explanation for the empty tomb. They said the disciples at night snuck in there around the guards that were guarding the tomb and the disciples came and stole the body and hid it away somewhere and now they're proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. All I can say is, is if they're saying the disciples stole the body, are they not acknowledging that the tomb is empty? So even Jesus' enemies were saying that the tomb is empty. They just had to come up with an alternate explanation for why it was empty. Of course, they didn't come up with a very good explanation. The guards who were at the tomb said that an angel came and rolled away the stone and they fled away in, in, in flight. And the Jewish leaders said, uh, we'll pay you some money, just be quiet, we'll make it okay, you won't get in trouble for allowing the, the, the tomb to become empty when you were supposed to guard it, and this is what we're going to say. We're going to say that the disciples stole the body. But I still go back to that argument about the disciples stealing the body. If they stole the body, they knew his resurrection would have been a lie, they knew it was a sham, and one of them under, under threat or penalty of death, one of them would have caved in and said, you know what? We made it up. We made up the whole thing. Not one of them did. And the reason not one of them did is because Jesus really did come out of that tomb alive. Amen. He really did appear to these people. Amen. Their story rings with accuracy and sincerity and authenticity. Let me give you one more reason. 
Jesus rose from the dead, and here's another reason, because the disciples said in the story that the very first person who became an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection was a woman. It was Mary Magdalene. And women in the first century had no standing in court. In fact, they, they, they were not allowed to give testimony in court. They said, I, I don't know why. I'm not going to go into the reasons why these misogynists were doing what they were doing. But they, they were demeaning women, and they said the woman's testimony is worthless. It doesn't mean anything. If that was the case, and everybody in the first century knew that a woman's testimony didn't have much credibility, why would they say the very first person to see Jesus from, risen from the dead was a woman? You know why they said that? Because that's what really happened. And they're telling the truth of what really happened. Amen. Which means that Jesus is risen from the dead, which means Jesus is who he claimed to be, which when Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, or that you might have life to the full, that he is telling us the truth. Amen. And so we can believe the testimony of these, of these followers of Jesus. We can believe that it really happened, that even if he did die a horrible death on a blood-stained cross, that he actually came out of the tomb alive and he was victorious. And so... Because Jesus lives, we too can live. Amen. You remember Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection of the life. Of course, you remember the, the context of where he said that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he walks over and he tells Lazarus, who's been in the grave for four days, to come out of the grave. And Lazarus, a dead man, came out of the grave after four days. So Jesus isn't just these big words and no action. Jesus isn't these audacious claims about himself, but he can't back it up. He said he was the resurrection and the life. He raises three people from the dead while he's, while he's doing his ministry on earth. And then he himself comes up out of the grave, not in an old crumpled up body that's going to decay and die. He comes up out of the grave in a resurrection body. And he says, because he lives, we too can live if we believe and follow him. Jesus is offering us today at least three wonderful uh, benefits of following him. Three wonderful benefits. I call it your trifecta. You know what a trifecta is? It, you bet on a race in a trifecta and you don't have, it, it's not enough just to pick first place. In a trifecta, if you win, you're going to win big. You have to choose which, which uh, horse or dog or whatever it is. You have to choose which is going to finish first which one's going to finish second, and which one is going to finish third in that order. Jesus is offering us this trifecta because he lives. He says, number one, we will live with God. We will live with God. The Bible talks in Revelation at the end of time that Jesus says that we're going to walk in the city of Jerusalem together and God is going to be among his people. We're going to live with him. We're going to live in a right relationship with him because we have trusted in what he said for us. So we get to live with God forever. That's the first of the trifecta. The second benefit for believing in Jesus is that we get to live with God's people. We get to not just live individually with Jesus, but Jesus places us in this family, in this family he calls the church. The Bible does, and 
for those of us who think, you know, it's just me and God, it's me and Jesus, religion's a private thing, I just want to practice my faith on my own, I don't want to meet with any other people, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to do Bible studies, I don't want to ask accountability questions of somebody, how's your walk this week? You know, uh, did you struggle with anything this week? You know, I don't want any of those questions. I don't want to be nobody getting in my business. You know, if that's, if that's the attitude, that is a, that's the attitude that's going to make you miss out on all that God has for us. Because he puts us into a family. He puts us into a community of believers. And when he puts us into this family of believers and we live with others, we get the ability to build one another up. We get the ability to encourage each other. We, we have this benefit that if I am faltering in my faith, if I lose my zeal and my passion for Christ, I can be around somebody else and I can see what they're doing. I can read or hear their story, their testimony. Like I just heard about Lisa and Target. I was with her. She was so excited. You know, uh, what are you doing this weekend? Thank you for asking. We're going to church for Easter. Would you like to come? And it, she got me fired up. I was sitting there going, I just want to pay for my stuff. You know, I don't, I don't, even, I don't even like shopping at Target. You know, I'm, I'm here because I'm your husband and I'm trying to be a good husband, right? So, so that was my motivation. And then she gets all fired up. But, but being around her fired me up. I was like, we got to go find somebody else and give them an invitation to our church. So... That's the benefit of living in community. And that's why the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling together. We need to stay strong together in God's family. So we live with God. We live with others. And then the third thing is God uh, starts showing us how to live according to God's purpose for our lives. We live in such a way that glorifies God. We start we start shedding the old self of ourselves that is ugly, the impatient, short, apathetic, non-caring, mean, short-tempered. We start shedding all that stuff and we start taking on the new character. We're still us, but we become the best version of us when we walk with Christ. And he starts transforming us from the inside out. And then not only that, so not only do we become more like Jesus in the way we act and think and feel, but then Jesus says, you know what? I'm on a mission. I, it, my mission didn't end with me coming out of the grave on that first Easter Sunday. That was the end of the beginning. What I'm inviting you to now is I want you to partner with me. I want you to co-labor with me. I want you to go on mission with me because there's a whole world out there that needs to know that God loves them and Jesus has made a way for them to be forgiven and go to heaven. And that message needs to be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And that message wasn't just for the first generation of followers. It was for you and me today. And so we get the privilege of joining God on this mission to rescue this lost and broken world and to bring the kingdom of God from heaven down here to earth and make this world a better place. Amen? Amen. We get all three of those things. Just He calls us to live this extraordinary life, and it can all be yours today. I sound like a salesman. I don't mean to be like that. It can all be yours today if you haven't yet bowed your knee to Jesus, if you haven't yet fully expressed your faith in him, you're being invited to turn to God in faith, you're being asked to trust in Jesus as your forgiver and leader, and then you're asked to, Jesus says one other thing, because when you go to the first Christians and you say, hey, 
when the church began 50 days after Jesus' resurrection and they said to Peter the apostle, they said, what, what should we do? You're telling us Jesus is the Messiah, that God made him both Lord and Christ. What should we do to start following Jesus? And Peter said, repent, turn back to God from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So we turn to God in faith. We ask Jesus to be our forgiver and leader. And then publicly, we stand up and we express our faith in Christ in baptism. Today's my 35th anniversary. Not of life, although none of you think I'm that young. But, uh, but 35, this is my 35th anniversary of a time when in 1982, on an Easter Sunday, my brother Jeff and our best friend Rich Leem and I, the, the trio of these young, uh, well, young adults, I was a freshman in college, we walked the aisle of our church in Fullerton. We came forward and all three of us were baptized into Christ. 35 years ago, and we became followers of Jesus. And I remember that day so well because I remember it was public. It was like, you know what? No more of that private Christianity. No more of that I'm not telling anybody. No more of that religion. You know, you don't talk about that anywhere. No, I declare that I'm going to be a loyal follower of Jesus for the rest of my life. And when you get baptized, that's what you're doing. And so I invite you. There's a card. There's a welcome card. If you've not yet taken that step of obedience to our Lord Jesus and you've not yet gone into the waters of baptism and identified with Jesus' death and his burial and then come out of the waters identifying with Jesus' resurrection over death, resurrection over sin, then I invite you to do that as well. And we can follow up and have that baptism. Let's close in prayer. I invite you to bow your heads and to close your eyes with me today. And if that's something... If what we've been talking about today is something that you want, are you ready? Are you ready to put your trust in Jesus? Do you want God's forgiveness in your life right now? Do you want to become his follower? Are you ready to say yes to following Jesus in your life? Because if you are, I'm inviting you to take that step of faith and obedience that millions and millions of other believers have done over the centuries. I invite you to pray with me. Just pray a prayer like this. Praying, praying is communicating with God. And God knows what's on our hearts. He knows if we're being sincere. He knows if we're really ready to make a change in our life. He knows if we're ready to cross over from not following Jesus fully to making him our leader, making him our forgiver and choosing to follow him. And so I invite you to say a prayer, something like this. Just say, Lord Jesus, today I believe in you. I believe that you died for me on the cross. I believe you completely paid the penalty for all my sins. And God, I believe that you didn't stay dead in the, in the tomb. Jesus, I believe you came out of the tomb on the third day. You are victorious over death. And that you live forever. And just like the Bible says, that you're reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus, I don't want to live the way that I've been living before. I, I don't want that emptiness. I don't want that uncertainty. I don't want that, that question mark. Am I really in God's family or am I really not? Lord, I want to settle things with you today. I want to I, I be your follower. I receive you into my life. I commit myself to follow you. And for you to be my forgiver and my leader. And Lord, I pray that you'll show me what it means in the days ahead. 
show me through what the Bible says, show me through this church, show me what the next steps are for me to continue to grow in this walk with you. Thank you, God. Thank you for your promise that says if, any of you, if anyone believes in him, that he would have them not perish but have eternal life. God, thank you for that promise. Thank you that I'm in your family now by faith. Thank you for that hope that I have. Thank you for that peace that you give me because I've done what you've asked me to do. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.